Shall we pray? Jesus, all for Jesus. Lord Jesus, we pray that as we have sung those words, so we would genuinely mean them. That all that we are, all that we have, all that we ever hope to be, would be caught up in who you are. That we would understand that it's only in your will that we're truly free. So we pray, teach us this morning. Be present amongst us, be at work in us, as you have promised. For we ask it for your name's sake. Amen. going to begin this morning with a question. Uh, what do you think is true freedom? What is true freedom? Is it, for example, freedom to do whatever you like, whenever you like, however you like to do it, and with whom you like to do it? Is it freedom to do those things, regardless of the consequences to yourself or the consequences for other people? Is that freedom? What is freedom? Well, clearly it was one of the uh, issues in the Corinthian church, what is freedom? And uh, they were wrestling with it and getting it seriously wrong. And as we come to our passage this morning, we see that they were getting freedom wrong in a general sense, but they were also getting it wrong specifically to do with sex. Now, just before uh, anyone starts to say, look, uh, Christchurch has got sex on the brain, you preached about it last Sunday, last Sunday evening, and this morning again, uh, it's one of the great uh, joys and also challenges of reading and studying the Bible sequentially is that we allow God to set the agenda. And that is what we're doing this morning. We're just starting where we left off in 1 Corinthians last week and where we left off from the last series and working our way through. And we're doing exactly the same in the evening with Matthew. Just a brief glimpse as you, as you look at uh, those words that were read to us earlier by Ricky, you'll see very quickly that uh, the Corinthian church thought that they were free to indulge their sexual passions and their sexual appetites as they wanted to. A bit like you or I might uh, indulge ourselves when we feel hungry. We go and indulge our appetite for food. Well, they were doing the same with sex. Clearly, the church is in a mess and uh, the problem, once again, as we saw last week, lies because they have been shaped and allowed themselves to be shaped by the world in which they live. They're allowing themselves to be shaped by the culture around them and not by the cross. Not by the cross. The Greek culture and the culture in Corinth was that uh, prostitution was everywhere. In all the pagan temples around, there was, uh, well, part of what they used to do was caught up with prostitution. And it appears that the church went along with such practices. At best, the church was indifferent. At worst, it was even encouraging and saying there's nothing wrong with it at all. And when we see the first century like that, it doesn't look that different, does it, to the 21st century that we live in. We're still obsessed with sex. So everything, whether it's food and ice cream or Formula One, motor car racing, it's, it's sold by sex, isn't it? Clothing and computers. You won't find prostitutes in temples, but you'll find them in the modern equivalent. You'll see them uh, in the brothels or on the streets. And the mantra of the 21st century is exactly the same. It's that 
Well, all sex is good, provided two things. Firstly, it's safe sex, and secondly, it's consensual. If it feels good, do it. That's the message of the 21st century, isn't it? And uh, just as the church in the first century was being shaped by the culture it lived in, so the same thing happens today, doesn't it? The current challenges in the Anglican Communion are partly and largely down to sex. And whether we are free to indulge ourselves how we want and whether that is true freedom. Just look at the slogan of the Corinthian church, verse 12. Everything is permissible for me. They say it again at the end of verse 12. Everything is permissible for me. And you know what? That sounds quite plausible, doesn't it? Everything is permissible. I mean, on one level, the Corinthians have got it right, haven't they? They've grasped that the great truth about the Christian faith is that, well, it's about God and his love, his grace. God's love and mercy freely given to undeserving sinners like you and me. Of course, it what sets the Christian faith against any other religion or ideology in the world, doesn't it? Because Christianity is about God coming down a ladder into the world to rescue us when we didn't deserve it. Every other ism, ideology or religion, it, it's, it's all about how we work our way to God. And so you can see that actually for the Corinthians, the Corinthians are saying, look, actually, hang on a second, Christ has done it all for me. Then I'm free to do what I like and live how I want. But you see, whilst they've grasped that, they've failed to grasp the implications of grace. And that's why uh, the way our passage finished last week was so helpful. It finished with a warning and an encouragement. The warning, if you want to just turn back a page to verse 9 of chapter 6. The warning is that, don't you know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. That's the warning. Sin excludes us from the kingdom of God. But then the great encouragement in verse 11. That is what you once were, Paul is saying. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. And so Paul's saying, look, if that's what's happened to you, why go back? Why go back? So what does Christian freedom look like? Because so often people say, oh, Christianity is all about rules and regulations. Well, Paul, I think, here gives us some very helpful principles and practical advice. Some of it is more general that we can apply to every area of life. Some of it more specific and particularly to do with sex. And we're going to look firstly at, at, at three principles, and they're, they're corrective principles. They're designed to show us what freedom isn't and what freedom is, so that you and I can really enjoy genuine freedom without worry. We can enjoy life to the max. Well, the first of them is in verse 12. And it's this, uh, freedom is liberty, not license. Freedom is liberty, not license. You see, if you're a Christian here this morning, you have been given your liberty from the consequences of sin so that you can live life to the max. 
And of course we do that by living our lives in a relationship with and in step with our Heavenly Father. But you know, that doesn't mean license to do as we please. Recently, uh, Ali and I uh, had to buy a new phone and uh, uh, we wanted one of those phones that would give us freedom to go around the house so that uh, it wasn't sort of stuck on the end of a, a long cord. And uh, Ali's mum was also needing a new phone at the same time. And so we thought it would be rather a good idea if, if we bought the same phone as she did so that when we were having problems with our phones, we could help one another uh, in order to use them properly and get the most out of our phones. And of course, on one level, once we'd bought our new phones, we could lose, use those phones as we wanted to, couldn't we? We had the freedom to use them as we liked. But on the other level, of course, unless we looked at the instructions that the makers had given us, unless we looked at those, then we would never know how to fully get the most out of our new phones. So there'd be no point, if you like, in me taking our our new phone into the shower in the morning. The phone's going, I reach out, grab the phone from the shower and go back in the shower. The instructions don't say do that. That would be stupid. All I'd do is destroy the phone. And of course, if I suggested to my mother-in-law to do the same thing, then I'd end up wrecking her phone as well, wouldn't I? You see, liberty, not license. And that's exactly the same that's true for the Christian life. We have been given freedom in Christ, liberty. We've been freed from having to keep the law in order to be right with God. And we've also been freed from the consequences when we don't keep that law. Freed from the consequences of sin. But that doesn't give us license to behave as we want to. If you and I are in Christ this morning, then we are radically changed. Verse 11 has happened. We have been washed, we have been sanctified, we have been justified. And that means that how we live, what is on the menu for our lives, must be radically altered too, in order for us to enjoy the freedom that God has given us. And Paul, I think, here in verse 12, gives us two qualifications, which I've made questions to help us think through true freedom. Verse 12, the first is this, and it's, it's... Is what we are doing, is it beneficial? So, the beginning of verse 12, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. You see, the question that we're to ask when we're wondering about what we're going to do, whether it's something that is right or wrong, is, well, does what I'm going to do help or benefit or build me up in the Christian life? Does it help me take that step forward in my relationship with Jesus? And likewise, will it help other people to do the same too? Is it beneficial? That's the first uh, qualification, the first question to ask. And the second one is at the end of verse 12. The Corinthians were saying, everything is permissible for me, but, Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. So the second question is, is it enslaving Will what I'm wanting to do master me? Take over my life? Will this activity that I'm thinking of doing, will it dominate my life? Will it make me either deny my allegiance to Jesus or will it take me away from my primary allegiance to him? You see how those two questions are so helpful? 
because they help us to, to assess whether what we're doing is actually enjoying our freedom or actually just taking license, whether we are genuinely at liberty or we're taking license. And that means, of course, every area of our life. So it means what we do in our employment, where we work, the hours we work, how we spend our time off with our family, even what we do for our hobbies, even how we serve in church. Because what may seem on the face of it a good thing to do, and Scripture may say these, what you want to do is a good thing, work, spending time with family, this and that and everything else. But, you know, if I'm always at work and I'm not having my time of Bible reading and prayer each day, well, then, not only is that not beneficial to me because I'm not growing in my relationship with God, I'm not growing in my discipleship, but also it's enslaving me, isn't it? If I neglect my family responsibilities on account of my work or anything else. Work is enslaving me. Or, for example, if I use all my free time to go to the gym and I'm not serving in church, I'm not helping others to grow in church. Well, that's probably both slavery, isn't it? And also not beneficial. Or if I forgo being in a small group in order to go to whatever else it may be you go to, whether it's a book club or a knitting club or something like that. Those things aren't off limits. But actually, if they're holding me back spiritually and pushing Jesus out of my life, then that is not true freedom. All we're doing is enslaving ourselves. So do you see these two uh, corrective questions? Freedom, you see, is liberty, it's not license. And that's true not just for sex, it's true for all areas of our lives. And I wonder who needs to ask themselves some tough questions here this morning about the areas of your lives, at home, at work, your time off. Second, second is found in verses 13 and 14. The body is made for immortality, not for immorality. So, verse 13a, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. That's probably one of the other Corinthian sayings of the time. Their logic is that as food is for the stomach, so sex is for the body. And since God is going to do away with both uh, our bodies, so they were saying, and is going to do away with food, then, well, actually our sexual behaviour has no spiritual impact at all if it's all going to be lost at the end on that final day. But you see, that's not true. That's not true. And as we hear those words of the Corinthians, I wonder if you can see the 21st century in that kind of thinking. The 21st century says that sex of any kind is all right. It's no different from going out for a curry. It's no different from going to the loo. It's no different from blowing your nose all bodily functions, all things that we do. And so the Corinthian argument is that we can satisfy ourselves how and when we like. But Paul knows that that argument is flawed. That argument is flawed because such behaviour is just immorality. Whereas, actually, our bodies are not destined to oblivion. Our bodies are destined for immortality. Just listen to how Paul goes on again. Verse 13. Food for the stomach and stomach for food. 
but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By the power God raised the Lord from the dead, he will also raise us. Do you see that if you're a Christian person here this morning, we need to remind ourselves that when Jesus was raised from the dead, that, that was the first off. That was setting a pattern for yours and my bodies. And so, when you or I became a Christian, when we were washed, sanctified, justified, through what Jesus did for us on the cross, at that time, God laid claim to yours and my body. And he laid claim to our soul and to our mind. He laid claim to all of us. And that's really important because when we realise that, and when we realise that our bodies are destined for immortality, then we will start taking immorality seriously. And so that means that I can't indulge myself as I want to, or as I feel like, because the way that I indulge my body is going to affect my spirituality. Do you see how that follows through? So whether that indulgence is sexual whether that means I'm trying to indulge myself sexually in a way that's not compatible with Scripture, whether that's me eating or drinking as I want to, eating too little and so starving myself, or eating too much, or drinking too much, as is so common in the 21st century, whether it's uh, abusing our bodies by sport, I've got no body to shout about. But there are some of us who are down the gym every day pounding their bodies to make their bodies look better. Is that an appropriate way to uh, prepare for immortality? And of course one could go on and on. Drugs and so on. The world may advocate those things, but as far as God is concerned, yours and my bodies are made for immortality and not immorality, be it sexual or any other kind of immorality. And you see, if we do so, if we do fall into the trap of the Corinthians, and if our thinking is wrong, then actually we're just destining ourselves for captivity and not freedom. Real freedom, real freedom is to understand where our body is destined for and live accordingly. And then thirdly, the third corrective found in verses 15 to 17. And it's this, the life united with Christ is not to be divided. The life that's united with Christ is not to be divided. Paul has just shown us that our bodies belong to the Lord and so he continues that if one day our body is going to be raised in glory, then how, if it also belongs to Christ, now how can we unite it with a prostitute? Just listen to verse 15 again. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then make the members of Christ, take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute. Never, says Paul. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, quoting Genesis, the two will become one flesh. Do you see how Paul goes right the way back to the beginning of time, back before the fall, back to when God created the world, back to when God created marriage. And sex was good and was to be enjoyed. They felt no shame. 
Paul, you see, reminds us that sex is meant exclusively for marriage. It's an act through which two people are made one. The word there is, is welded. I don't know if there are any welders amongst us. I did some welding at school and all I managed to do was just weld my fingers. Very painful. But actually what Paul is saying here is that welded, husband and wife welded together, that is what sex does. It welds us to another person. And that means that sex is not a mere physical act. There can be no such thing as casual sex. Because sex makes us one with another person. And if you and I are in Christ this morning, then such sexual immorality is a denial of that union with Christ. And that's going to set us up against the world, isn't it? The world thinks so differently. The world says sex is fine, regardless of who it's with, whether it's with a prostitute, with somebody of the same sex, with a fellow student or a colleague that you're not married to, with the person next door, with the person we share a house with. Regardless of whether it's in a long-term relationship or a short-term relationship, it doesn't matter. And that makes it very hard for us as Christians, doesn't it? To stand firm, to resist. Because everyone is doing such different things to what Scripture says. And it's especially difficult, isn't it? When those in the church are advocating freedom that is not freedom. And you see, you can go on saying those kind of things until you reach the crux, verse 17. He who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. You see, you cannot be truly united, as I was saying just now, with Christ and leave your sexual activity outside his authority. You can't have it both ways. You cannot live with Christ one moment and outside Christ another moment. That is not true freedom. That is just a recipe for disaster. I wonder if you've ever uh, tried to uh, walk uh, between two boats. Uh, I I did it uh, a a few years back in Oxford, and we were going out punting, and I don't know if you've ever been been punting, but the punts are all lined up uh, alongside one another. And, of course, the punt they point you to is the furthest one away from the jetty. And uh, I was busy sort of hopping from boat to boat, and as I got out towards the the punt that I was going to be using... Uh, the lines on which they were held got longer and more slack as I got the further out towards the boat that I was supposed to be going to. And uh, as I made my final step from the penultimate boat or punt to mine, well, disaster struck. Yes, you can see where I'm going. One foot in one punt, one foot in the other punt, both very limply moored. And what happens? And I'm no gymnast, I can tell you. It was very painful. It was disaster. And you see, that's what Paul is saying we are doing if we try to have one foot with Christ, one foot in the world. We're heading for spiritual disaster. We're not enjoying freedom at all. That is not freedom. It's a recipe for disaster. And I wonder who amongst us this morning is trying to do that. Who amongst us this morning needs to come back to Jesus? and admit their allegiance to him, first and foremost, and to living his way. You see, there's no being two-faced, no double-mindedness here. Unity with Christ, first and foremost. 
and above everything else. These then, you see, are Paul's words, corrective principles for enjoying true freedom. And if we set them to one side, we're not going to give ourselves more freedom. We're going to find ourselves in bondage to sin and heading to eternity without him. So you see, we need to to take hold of these principles, don't we? That freedom is liberty and not license. The body is made for immortality, not immorality. And that the life united with Christ is not to be divided. Well, so what, I hear you say. So what? Well, can I just leave us with uh, two final thoughts from our passage this morning about how we work this out in practice. Two... uh, commands from Paul. We find them in verses 18 through to 20. And the first you can see, verse 18, which is flee. And the second you can find in verse 20, which is honour. Flee sexual immorality, honour God with your body. Let's just spend two moments on both. The first is, is flee. Flee. It means we don't just avoid sexual immorality just by going around its periphery. We get right out of the room, right out of the building. You see, it takes courage. It's the courageous person who flees sexual immorality, not the coward. It takes courage. Do you remember the courage of uh, Joseph back in Genesis 39? He was uh, the sort of household, uh, I suppose you might call it the household manager for Potiphar. And uh, every day, Mrs. Potiphar kept on coming in, trying to seduce Joseph. She'd say, come and lie with me, come and lie with me, come and lie with me. And day after day after day, it went on and on and on. And then one day, she grabbed Joseph's cloak, and he fled, leaving it behind. And in a moment, what happened to Joseph? He lost his cloak, he lost his reputation, because she started saying that he was making immoral advances against her. And he lost his freedom, he was thrown into jail. Very costly indeed, but he knew what true freedom was. He knew true freedom was to go God's way. He himself, in his own words, said, how can I do such a wicked thing to her time after time? Because to do such a thing is to sin against God. And if, if you're still wondering whether uh, you can dabble with sexual sin, just see how dangerous sexual sin is and why we need to flee. We can see it three ways in these final verses. Firstly, sexual immorality is a sin against our own bodies. Verse 18, all other sins, it should just read all sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. How can that be true freedom to sin against yourself? That's just perverse, isn't it? It may mean that we cause ourselves disease, psychological scarring. We can't form proper relationships a lack of enjoyment of sex after marriage. It means, too, that we're forgetting that our bodies are made for immortality and not immorality. And that to go down a sexual sin route, like any other sin, could quite easily bar us from heaven if we don't repent. Sexual immorality is a sin against ourselves first. Secondly, it's a a sin against God. Verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have received from God. God is living in you if you're a Christian person here this morning. How then, how then can you delve into sexual immorality? 
He's in you. I think sometimes we need to be reminded of that. He's not blind to what you're doing. If we truly love him, if we truly marvel at his presence in us, we will flee. We will flee. And then thirdly, sexual immorality is a sin against our own redemption. End of verse 19. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Don't you remember verse 11? You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. At a price, and the price is what we remember at communion this morning. A price so high that you and I could not pay. A price that was paid by the blood of God's own Son, Jesus, upon a cross. His life, that we might enjoy life with God now and in eternity. And so to continue in sin, or even to begin sexual immorality, is a denial of what has happened to you, of what Christ has done for you. It's another reason, isn't it, to flee, to flee sexual immorality. That's why it's better if you're, if you're not a married person here and you go on holiday with your boyfriend or girlfriend. It's better to go with a chaperone, isn't it? than to yield to sexual temptation and sin. It's why if you're living in a house with uh, other, another person of the opposite sex, or if you're living in a house with your boyfriend or girlfriend, don't deceive yourselves. The temptation is going to be always there. Don't play games. It's why the best course of action is to remove yourself from the cause of sexual immorality. That may be removing yourself from the news agents where you buy the magazines, from the internet, from the TV. It may be to remove yourself from the activity that you do where your attraction to someone else is immoral. And friends, that may be someone at church. It may be involved in some church activity. We've got to flee. We cannot pretend that we can control our hormones. You know, we think we can control our hormones. But you know, we can't even begin to negotiate with them, let alone control them. So let's not fool ourselves. I wonder who needs to flee this morning. Fleeing is the courageous thing to do, not the cowardly thing to do. It's the best way to fight temptation. I wonder who needs to act on these words this morning when you leave here. Maybe something you need to flee from, someone you need to flee from, an activity at work or at home or in church life that you need to flee from. God's word says flee. And then finally, honour God with your body. The end, the final sentence, therefore honour God with your body. That in a sense is what we've been speaking about this morning. Honour God with your body. That means we must turn away from sexual immorality or indeed any other sin. We've been redeemed by the blood of the Son. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so this morning as we approach communion in a moment, I hope each one of us will think very seriously about how we are living out our freedom. It may well be that some of us are not living freedom at all. Well, as we approach communion, can I remind you the great news of the cross? The great news of the cross is that when we repent... When we return to Jesus, we will receive his forgiveness and start all over again. wonder who needs to do that here this morning. Well, I'm sure we all need time to reassess our lives, time to recalibrate where we're at. Let's just spend a moment of quiet now in our own hearts.
I'm going to give a few moments of quiet and then I'll pray. But just think through our lives and, and how so easily we dabble with sin, particularly sexually.